Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, Excelsior, and welcome to another edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. In the 1950s, it was the Western, with questions of right and wrong played out in a moral wilderness. In the 60s and 70s, it was the paranoid spy movie and the existential journey of the outsider. In the 80s, the brutally assertive action movie. The cinematic signature of the 21st century, on the other hand, has been the superhero movie, specifically the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that sprawling fable of 33 interlocking blockbusters, which began in 2008 with Iron Man. Based on characters from the comics publisher's decades-old roster, the Marvel movies, in their pomp, turned characters such as Iron Man, Black Widow, Captain America and Thor from marginal figures, known only to comic book shop customers like, well, me, into global brands. We may well be coming to the end of the Marvel Age of Cinema. Earlier this month, The Marvels, featuring Iman Vellani, Brie Larson and Tiana Paris in the first all-female-led ensemble superhero movie, registered the MCU's worst opening weekend yet at only $46.1 million. And even a nerd like me can find it hard to keep up with the multiple threads in the wave of TV adaptations pumped out by Disney Plus over the past couple of years. But every dominant movie genre tells us something about its age, its politics, its concerns, its hopes and its fears. So what does the Marvel era tell us about the first two decades of the 21st century? My guest today is one of three authors of the hefty book MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, which tells the astonishing, spectacular, incredible inside story of how Marvel went from a struggling toy business with comics attached into the most powerful force in Hollywood. And he's also an old colleague of mine from Details Magazine in America. So... We meet again, Gavin Edwards. At last. At last. How are you, Gavin? Good to see you again. I'm very well. How are you, Andrew? I'm, I'm not bad. Welcome to Bunker Team Up. I love the book, obviously, because I'm a Marvel guy. Hollywood is almost the custodian of the American soul. It's about you know what the movies say about us as a, as a society. It's where America takes its own pulse. What, what do you think the Marvel movies have told us about America's politics, its kind of social temperature in these weird disruptive years? Because the Marvel era stretches from Obama to Trump to Biden and maybe even back to Trump again. Well, I can point out sort of two uh, huge things. One is where uh, they very much responded uh, to uh, 9-11, that there's an era where just sort of like fantasy takes off. And it's not just superhero movies. It's also Harry Potter. It's also Lord of the Rings. You know, like sort of like people at that moment wanted just like very black and white. There is good, there is evil, they're going to fight each other, and good is going to win. So that, I think, you know, sort of uh, like uh, is part of why like sort of like the ground was fertile for like people wanting to see these stories the other thing that sort of like 
uh, interestingly uh, happened with Marvel in recent years is they really anticipated the pandemic. Um, and so, uh, you know, like in like the Marvel mythology, as you know, Thanos snaps half the world out of existence. And there's this like big like disconnect of like, you know, there's five missing years. And so it's interesting uh, that, you know, sort of like Marvel very much anticipated that state of dislocation that we've all been in uh, the last few years where sort of like, oh, wait, like what happened to time for a couple of years there? You delve into the forces that shape the movies and the kind of external and internal pressures. In many respects, the book is a tale of of, of corporate infighting and, and struggles for power, but it's also the kind of external political currents that shape it. And there's one really interesting bit where it does, it's an early script of Iron Man, and Tony Stark sees a pile of crates uh, showing uh, you know how various American presidents had allowed his weapons to get out into the world. And the character says, points out the boxes saying Reagan, Clinton, Bush, indicating which president allowed these deadly weapons out into the world. And this scene was deemed too political and removed yes. because Marvel had a, a relationship with the military at this time. So uh, Marvel uh, uh, at that time uh, got access to uh, Air Force equipment and uh, personnel and uh, materiel. Uh, by uh, cooperating with them. And this was actually one of the fascinating things I didn't know about until we started in the book, that I knew there was a public affairs office for the U.S. military, but I didn't realize what that meant was that they, you know, you give them a script, and if they are not happy with the script, like, they will drill down and say, you need to change this line. And, you know, in the case of the Iron Man movie, um, there's, like, some enlisted man who says, like, I, uh, you know, I would kill myself for, like, the opportunities that you have, Tony Stark. And they say, you cannot do that. You cannot, uh, you know, sort of like make a reference to uh, like suicide among enlisted personnel. And what actually ruptures the relationship uh, is that uh, when S.H.I.E.L.D. comes in, uh, the military can't abide the notion that there's like a shadowy force like over the military. Like, you know, if you're going to do that, then uh, we can't help you out and give you tanks and airplanes. One of the key moments, and you just alluded to it, uh, is the kind, of, the kind of halftime and climax in Avengers Infinity War when Thanos, the big bad guy, at the end of the movie, actually wins. He snaps his fingers. Half of the heroes die. Half of the universe dies. We all cry our eyes out as you know, young Spider-Man kind of disappears to dust. He's such a good kid. He can't die like that. And this was discussed as kind of capturing the disbelief and the horror of Trump winning. Did it connect like that for you personally, Gavin? Oh, um... I mean, uh, except I didn't grind my teeth for like the next four years after the heroes got dusted, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it was also just sort of like one of the all-time great like Saturday serial moments, you know, sort of like to be continued, uh, only they delivered pretty quickly, you know, like even uh, with like Luke, I Am Your Father, that takes three years before you get a follow-up. In this case, like next year, there's a movie, you know it's coming. But in terms of like capturing, you know, the, because when Trump won, there was a genuine period of disbelief yes. uh, and, and simultaneously kind of mourning on the kind of pro progressive left, but also gloating on the political right. You would see, you know, shit posted memes of, uh, you know, weeping protesters and that poor woman who became the triggered meme, you know, the kind of woman gritting her teeth. Ah, and yeah. this is almost kind of dealt with in the opening scenes of Endgame, isn't it? Where we see Captain America and many of the other characters kind of attending therapy to deal with the effects right. of this trauma. I think they very much uh, tapped into the mood. And like, I, uh, I have no information that they were specifically saying, you know, sort of like, we're going to make something that like deals with the election. And I don't think they were. Uh, and, you know, sort of 
getting rid of like half of creation is like, it's a political idea. I mean, this is like what Malthus proposed, right? But I think, you know, sort of like the way uh, they're good at things like this is being dialed in, not just to the mood, but what is the mood of the country going to be two years from now? Because when you're writing a script, you know that it's you know, you're going to be filming it the following year and releasing it the year after that. So I think uh, it just shows that they're sort of like, you know, these movies come out in like uh, 2018, 2019. Trump happens in 2016. So, yeah, that's the mood. The FT did a fantastic piece, which was that Thanos is a great villain, but a terrible economist. <laughs> where they pointed out how badly the universe, if you had an infinite, if you had infinite power in a gauntlet that controlled time and space, the number of ways you could fix the economy are vast. You don't actually have to kill anybody. And actually, maybe he just likes killing people. Maybe that's the real engine behind the whole thing. These are years of kind of division and rancor and kind of uh, political instability. And yet the, the two key heroes that emerge in these movies are Chris Evans as Captain America, who is a patriot from the very simple black and white 1940s, who discovers that his country is actually run by a secret conspiracy and you can't trust the government. And, you know, his, his parallel, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, who is a, as you said, a, a, a one percenter. He's an absolute dick uh, who changes in the course of the movies to the extent that he's willing to sacrifice his, his life to save his friends and also the, the, the wider universe. I want to ask you about Captain America. This is a conservative icon. The guy literally wears the flag. Right. And yet his story within the Marvel Universe is kind of strangely progressive. It's like the obverse of, you know, people say a conservative is a liberal mugged by reality. Uh, Captain America is a, a conservative mugged by reality. He's sort of, his eyes open. Right. So it's actually, I mean, this is something that the comic books wrestled with for a long time. That, you know, sort of like there's a point in the 1970s where Captain America like sort of gives up, you know, sort of like the flag uniform calls himself nomad and like sort of like roams the country. Also in this era, he discovers that, you know, sort of like there's this great secret conspiracy and he unmasks, it's pretty clear, like Nixon in the White House and, uh, you know, sort of like in the Oval Office, like, no, there's actually like a shape-shifting like alien monster underneath. And what they eventually settled on was that, uh, you know, sort of like Captain America didn't necessarily represent everything the United States of America did. He sort of espoused the best version of its ideals. And so that was like an inspiration uh, to its people. And it took the comics like quite a few decades to work that out. But you always see it for me, seemed like a fairly straightforward black and white character when I was growing up. And it is fascinating to me, like in the last 10 years or so, um, I mean, basically starting around the time of the MCU, um, he's become a much more morally complicated character. And it begins in the comic books where there's this great Ed Brubaker run uh, that introduces the Winter Soldier and also just sort of like it puts him into like the world of espionage where he actually kind of makes sense, although he's still wearing the red, white, and blue uniform. It's not exactly covered, yeah, is it? <laughs> but, but the other thing that's happened is this, the origin story every year gets a little more tragic. That, you know, sort of like when he's first like wakes up from like being frozen, like when Stan Lee brings him back, it's like 1962, 1963, and his friends are all 20 years older. Well, that's a shame. You missed, uh, you know, like some really good jazz music, but they're still around. Now when you do it, like basically everybody knows is dead. Like, and you sort of like he's a man out of time and who just sort of like doesn't understand like what's in front of him. And they play this for comedy, but there's also this real tragic, uh, you know, sort of like underpinning of like he's missed out on his life. I think this is why I like him a lot more now, because as a kid, he used to find him a bit boring and slightly Boy Scoutish. But I think the way that he's gone, particularly in the movies, because Chris Evans is just such a He's, you know, he's a great everyman, both when he's digitally altered to be puny and when he's jacked, he's still kind of the same guy. 
with that great distance, having, you know, being a man so far out of time, having lost pretty much everything, it almost kind of mirrors, a, you know, from a distance, what I say is like America's own identity problem. You know, we, you, you never stop hearing about the greatest generation. You never stop hearing about the wartime generation and everything that they did. And nobody has ever really measured up. And Cap is kind of that guy. Um, and, you know, his superpower is not so much the fact that he's an amazing athlete and he's a fantastic strategist and he's got the shield. His superpower power is, he's, he's, is he cannot not do the right thing. Yeah. And he expects the best out of other people as well. Uh, and sort of like, you know, now he does the right thing and he inspires other people too as in addition. So from the ultimate idealist, we've got his counterpart is the ultimate cynic, Tony Stark, Iron Man. Essentially, you know, in real life would be Elon Musk, in real life would be utterly insufferable. And yet the... The genius of the stories is that we see this figure who is, you know, Marvel's brief was always the world outside your window. And we live in a world of Tony Starks now, don't we? Amoral, rich dicks. And those are people's favorite superheroes, like Iron Man and Batman. Like, you know, they're like both plutocrats. That's what we want out of our, uh, like, the plutocrats, right? Like, if the 1% actually had... You know, sort of. I mean, Captain America tells uh, the Tony early on, "You're not the type to make the sacrifice play," which is like an accurate read of him. We want these people to actually have society's like uh, interests at heart, to look at something beyond like their uh, bank balances. And what you get instead is Elon Musk buying Twitter and being an insufferable prat. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. One thing about the truly dominant movies is that it's that people will know what's happening in them even if they don't watch them. And lots of our listeners, if they've got this far in our movie on Marvel <laughs> viewers, thank you for putting your faith in us. But you know, people will know that in Civil War the heroes kind of all fight each other. And in one respect, it's like elevating what all kids do with their action figures to a kind of a, a level of high drama. Yes. But in another respect, it kind of actually dramatizes something very real in politics. You know, do you put your faith in the state? And regulation, or do you put your faith in the individual? And the great twist is that it's the big individualist, Iron Man, the one percenter, who actually places his faith in the state, says, we superheroes are too dangerous, we must be regulated. And it's the conservative icon, Captain America, who says, no, you know, you can't trust America, we have to trust ourselves. I mean, some of it is, of course, like arbitrary, like we need to split the heroes into like sort of two even teams. And it's a very, you know, sort of like basic metaphor. As you say, it's like action figures punching each other that, you know, like at the end of the day, 
there is an ideological underpinning that gets you to a big fight at the airport. And the point <laughs> is the fight at the airport more than it is the ideological underpinning. But they're smart enough to do it in a way that, you know, sort of feels like a nuance of the character rather than just, I'm mad. <laughs> it is round about the time of kind of Mar- the, sort of the mid uh, mid 2010s as Marvel is becoming this unstoppable beast that it it becomes a bit of a political lightning rod. And one one example is the is the sexual politics of the of the character Black Widow. Right. Uh, Scarlett Johansson, Russian super spy, been around since the 60s. She's amazing. But the kind of twist that's placed on her is that my Russian handlers, my Russian masters, when I was in the you know Russian espionage, they uh, operated upon me so that I can't have kids and I'm a monster. She tells this to Bruce Banner. I'm a monster. I can't. And this went down very, very badly. Yes. Not just with female fans, but with anybody who's like, there are other ways to, you know, to live your life. Did the backlash affect how Marvel made movies from what you discovered doing the book? I think that particular uh, thing was just sort of like, that was a Joss Whedonism that like, you know, he wrote and directed that and uh, there was backlash, but they, uh, you know, sort of, not enough that it really like altered the course of uh, things that, you know, sort of like Whedon going off the movies ultimately was uh, for other reasons. What you see more was like just a more fundamental issue of um, that, you know, sort of like the heads of Marvel Studios, uh, such as Kevin Feige, had to fight tooth and nail the very idea that there were going to be like women superheroes in these movies at all. That, you know, to like cast like Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow when Ike Perlmutter, who owns Marvel and runs Marvel Entertainment in New York City, you know, his background is toys and his attitude is what sells are, you know, sort of like, Toys, uh, you know, like based on, uh, you know, sort of like young white men in their 20s, ideally played by somebody named Chris. And so you have a years long battle to get, you know, like uh, characters, uh, you know, like who are not Caucasian to get women in leading roles. And uh, it is just sort of like uh, an ongoing uh, battle. And then you can, uh, but even before you get into questions of like the best, uh, like mode of representation, it's, is this representation going to happen at all? One bit that you uncovered in the book, which made my jaw drop, was that the institutional sexism was so great that in a toy set, there's a scene in in one of the movies where Black Widow rides a motorbike. And in the toy set, the motorbike has been ridden by Iron Man, a character who can fly and doesn't need a motorbike. Yes. <laughs> That's how deep it runs. You know, like, did you forget that you've got these things on your feet that carry you through the air? Um, the Marvel culture is very much shaped by the idea that, you know, People, by which they mean boys and parents, don't buy female dolls and they don't buy black dolls. They don't buy action figures of anybody who isn't white. And it takes Marvel an awfully long time to make a black-led movie. Right. And yet when it does, Black Panther becomes not just the biggest superhero movie, it becomes a massive cultural moment. Is it just sort of ingrained basic racism within Marvel that I think made was, this happen? Uh, I mean, uh, it's ingrained basic uh, racism in the... Uh, not everyone at Marvel, but, you know, sort of like in the, the top leadership um, uh, that, you know, sort of like Ike Perlmutter uh, was, uh, you know, sort of to the extent that this book uh, has a villain, it's Ike. And, you know, so Marvel fans owe him a debt of gratitude. If he hadn't bought the company out of bankruptcy uh, when it did, when he did, it wouldn't exist. It would have been sold off for parts. But he ends up being just like a very like retrogressive, uh, retrograde guy. He's personally unpleasant to work for. He, you know, he's sort of like makes sure that you know, sort of the offices like never spend a penny more than they need to. So people's furniture and chairs is literally falling apart underneath them. And he puts in like surveillance cameras in the the, the Marvel the headquarters. But uh, it's just sort of like an old school uh, dude 
who, uh, you know, his attitude is uh, like, I've got some uh, charts that show that I wasn't able to sell these types of toys. I have ingrained this lesson. And, you know, like the idea that the world might have changed even a little bit never occurred to him. Not making a movie with a black superhero, and then when you make one, it makes $1.3 billion, yeah. shows a lack of market knowledge, perhaps. And, you know, sort of, and gets, like, Marvel their first Oscar nomination. They absolutely, like, I mean, there was a huge audience that was just really hungry for this. Like, I mean, obviously black people themselves, but then just sort of like everyone feeling like, oh, this like this is the moment we're in. Like we need to see, it feels fresh and new because you're not getting the same thing over and over finally. But also it kind of connected, not ju- it connected to a kind of political moment, not just Black Lives Matter, but also the kind of conversations about representation and whose cultural heritage gets to appear where the rich world of Black Panther where the country of Wakanda is kind of both an amazing fantasy world, but a kind of very poignant representation of, you know, what might have been sure. if, you know, people who are the same color as me and you hadn't gone in and uh, nicked everything. I mean, Wakanda is a, uh, um, it's a utopia, and it's a utopia because it never had to deal with Western uh, the colonialism. Um, and that's, uh, you know, sort of, a very pointed thing. And that actually, one of my favorite decisions that Chadwick Boseman made um, in his uh, Black, uh, playing uh, T'Challa in uh, Black Panther, um, is he insisted on uh, using an African accent. Um, so that if we give him a British accent or American accent, that means that, you know, sort of like his language comes from, uh, you know, sort of like the colonialists. And so it has to be something that sort of like speaks like the independence and uh, the fact that we're not tainted by that. Black Panther is huge, and Captain Marvel, uh, led by uh, starring Brie Larson, also becomes a bit of a political lightning rod because the movie gets review bombed by angry male viewers. Yes, many of whom hadn't seen it yet because it hasn't come out yet. Who don't want a woman playing a formerly male character? Did Marvel kind of respond adequately on this? I mean, you know, it, it kind of did go all in on non-white male characters called Chris. What they wanted uh, for the uh, second, uh, like sort of like wave of uh, Marvel characters, like after like having uh, gone all in on the Chris's, as you say, was they were thinking that the like sort of the three pillars, like after Avengers Endgame, was going to be Tom Holland as Spider Man, a white dude and a Brit, good guy by all accounts, Chadwick Boseman, and then uh, Brie Larson, and they very sort of like consciously like saw like okay, we're like going to be like uh, the pillars of what's coming. And then you have, uh, like for reasons to a certain extent beyond Marvel's control, like that all sort of like uh, becomes fractured. The Tom, the, you know, sort of like the Spider-Man rights are always in dispute between uh, Disney and Sony. There's no guarantee they're going to get to make more movies. Chadwick Boseman tragically dies young and uh, like in his absence is very much felt even when they make another Black Panther movie. And Brie Larson is in the, the Marvels now, but she definitely like had the sense of, do people even want me to do this role anymore? You know, like you can see that like her enthusiasm for like being, you know, sort of like iconic and a role model got diminished by the fact that, you know, sort of like she got like washed over by this like tsunami of like misogyny. So, so a lot of the problems you have right now with, you know, sort of like Marvel, you know, sort of like it looking you know, sort of like they're in this wobble moment where, you know, sort of like the enthusiasm is dimmed a lot. And there's multiple reasons for that. But one of them is that the characters that they thought they were building on for uh, various reasons have just kind of like washed away. 
I've got to say that since Endgame, there haven't been too many that you could say this is a really great movie. Yeah. It's not just the fact that there's a chunk of, you know, young male um, audience that simply doesn't want to see women and doesn't want to see ethnic minorities, doesn't want to see anybody who doesn't look like them. Is the fact that, like, The Eternals is a pretty bad movie. They burn through a lot of the goodwill, right? That, you know, sort of the first couple of that that happened, people were like, oh, you know, Sir Ant Man and the Wasp isn't so hot, but uh, but fine. Like, it's a good Marvel movie. We're in a good mood about it. But by the time you get to Quantumania, people go, ah, maybe I've had enough of this for a while. Do you think that, um, you know, the kind of conventional wisdom is that the kind of dash to TV simply overstuffed the market that you know i mean i find it hard enough to keep up with the multiple threads and i'm a card carrying nerd with a marvel phd um i think it absolutely um overstuffed the market but the other side of the equation is that marvel um it overtaxed the studio um that one of the things that we learned doing the book was the extent to which uh, kevin feige who uh, runs marvel is really the indispensable man at marvel it used to be they would make two or three movies a year. And he was always kind of like, he's a very hands-on producer to the point of almost being a shadow director. You go off and shoot your movie and then you bring it back and he's going to look through and say, oh, here's what you need to hit in the reshoots. He's able to really focus on every single movie. Then Bob Iger, just before he leaves, Disney uh, says, hey, the future is streaming. You know, sort of like, it's going to be quantity over quality. Like get as many TV shows going as you can. And that's where you get to like, the mixed results of what comes out. And that's partially because Kevin Feige is one man. Like you can't scale him up. Like, you know, he could do three movies a year, but he couldn't do that and six TV shows. That way of making movies that you just described is is one of the kind of key criticisms that Marvel actually makes movies as a kind of corporate behemoth rather than the singular vision of the director. It's become known over the years, for instance, that they'll start assembling the major special effects um, sequences before they've got a director or even a script. That you know they will start building projects before cast, scriptwriter, or director are anywhere near it. What do you think about that? I mean, for, you know, for my money, like Kevin Feige has made lots of amazing movies and helped lots of movies be made, but there is a Marvel feel. Sure, there absolutely is. Um, so I think one is. This is also an old way of making movies that like, you know, if you don't like a studio assembly line, do you also not like MGM musicals Um, that, you know, there's uh, like decades of Hollywood history where like, this is what they do. Like, okay, we've got actors on contract. We've got, you know, sort of like costumers on contract and like, they're all going to work here for years and years. And, you know, sort of like, we're just going to get them from one project next to the other. Creativity can flourish in different ways. Marvel is probably not the best place for like a young auteur. And one of the things that really doesn't work is when they get a hot young indie director and say, okay, now you're running a superhero movie. And like, it, not, uh, sometimes it's not such a good uh, idea. But there are directors who have thrived in it. And you know, Ryan Coogler did very well with Black Panther, partially because they left him alone. Um, Taika Waititi, I thought, did a wonderful job with uh, Thor Ragnarok. And that was, he had a very strong sense of what the boundaries were. He didn't care that much about the action sequences. He was happy to let Marvel do their thing. If he got to, like, improvise and joke and, you know, sort of, like, rethink the character, that played into his strengths. And so that was what he wanted to do with the movie. So when they can find the right people, it works. But uh, they're not uh, in the business of just giving people free reign at this point. Nothing's guaranteed for the future. We may well be at the end of Marvel's kind of imperial period. We may well have passed it, in fact. Like I say, don't think there's been too many great ones since uh, since Endgame. How do you think people will look back on what this body of movies says about this period of time? So 
I think the imperial period is absolutely done, but I don't think uh, the movies are going away anytime soon. And, you know, sort of like they may even have huge hits uh, coming up. We'll see what happens the next time, like there's an Avengers movie. But I think this is, uh, when people look at this flourishing of, uh, you know, sort of like it is the beginning of the mass scale IP. And I, like not all of this is Marvel's fault, but the idea that, you know, sort of like uh, when you go to the multiplex and 19 out of 20 screens are showing like Avengers Endgame, that is absolutely a symptom of it's hard to get a movie on the screen if it's not based on pre-existing intellectual property. And Marvel had intellectual property that had a built-in fan base. They have brightly colored costumes. It's largely sexless. It translates well around the world. And so, uh, you know, it turned out to be kind of ideal for the moment and uh, then, you know, when every other movie seems to be in that mode, then I think you have a real problem. And so given that audiences are looking for something else now, I think they will probably look back fondly at this, but it's also a representation of it crystallizes just kind of everything Hollywood was trying to do, uh, you know, often for uh, you know, worse rather than better in this 15 to 20 year period. And yet I look at this and I go, you've done all these characters and yet we still don't get Captain Britain the movie, which I've been waiting for since 1970. I've got the pitch, it's simple, Downton Abbey with superpowers. <laughs> People would watch the shit out of that. They absolutely, And the Americans would love it as well. I just want to ask you finally, Gavin, I mean, obviously this is a labour of love for you and your two co-writers. Yes. Oh, uh, Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez, uh, who worked on this for years before I showed up. Uh, so like, I yeah. absolutely say, uh, you know, this yes. is not me, 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 that like they are... Uh, did amazing work. It is a triumvirate, but I want to ask you, what's your own favourite movie from these 33 and counting? Um, it would be Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, which uh, is ironic because it was not a comic book I was into at all. Like, it was a very fringe thing, and uh, but just uh, like the utter delight of, uh, you know, sort of like a cynical uh, raccoon in a tree, and like these are superheroes, and uh, it gave me something that I had never seen or expected before. How about yourself? And the music, of course. Yes. Oh, yes. It's Winter Soldier for me. Ah, it's, good choice. You know, it's the, you know, the most intense political thriller. Plus Captain America beating people up. What more could you wish for? <laughs> Gavin Edwards, thank you for joining me in the bunker. Andrew, such a pleasure. MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios by Gavin Edwards, Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez is out now in hardback. And if you buy it through the link in the show notes, you'll be helping both Gavin and the podcast. We get a couple of quid through our affiliate link and those glow-in-the-dark editions of Incredible Hulk will not buy themselves, you know. And of course, if you really want to help out, you can always back the podcast on Patreon to get early episodes, fancy merchandise, and much more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Till then, face front, true believer. Bunker Daily was presented by Podmasters Group Editor, Andrew Harrison. The Managing Editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the Producers were Liam Tate and me, Alex Reese. Art Direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker will return. <laughs>